0: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and I love all things tech. And it's time for another classic episode of Tech Stuff. This one published, holy cow, September 29th, 2010, Wow, this one's really diving into the archives. And I do mean diving, because this episode's all about how sonar works. Dive, dive, boop, boop, boop. So uh, I talked a lot about echolocation in recent episodes. This is the episode where we really looked at the tech behind sonar. So listen as Chris and I explore the incredible world of sonar. Hope you enjoy. Have I got this straight, Jonesy? A $40 million computer tells you you're chasing an earthquake, but you don't believe it, and you come up with this on your own? Uh That had a direct bearing to our topic today. And that topic would be? Sonar. Uh Sound, navigation, and ranging. Well, that uh, pretty much covers it.
0: Yeah. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's one of those nice... uh, Nice words that sort of covers it. So
1: yeah, no, it's, it's it's very it's very much exactly what it sounds like. It's using sound to navigate uh, and to uh, to find the distance from other objects.
0: Yes, yeah, it turns out there are a lot of ways to use sonar, um, yeah. and we'll get into that uh, in a minute. But there are also a lot of different types of applications, uh, different ways to use it, as in like uh, different kinds of equipment that that can be used to find depth and identify things in the water and uh, even map the seafloor if you want to do that. Yep. And uh, actually, the, the you know we're not the only ones to, to
1: use sonar, not by a long shot. True. Dolphins and whales use it yes, as man, do other animals. Yes, that would be uh, echolocation. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's what the sonar is based off of. It's the idea of the way sound travels. And so if you sound travels in waves, it's, a, it's mm-hmm. actually a physical uh, thing. It's, you know, we don't see it, but it is a physical effect. When you make a sound, you are causing stuff to bang against each other.
0: Sounds so, so
1: scientific. It's true, though. That's true. So, when sound travels, it's really lots of air molecules That's bouncing true. against each other until, uh, well, really just until it disperses. Mm-hmm. So, it keeps on going. I mean, uh, and we detect sound, of course, through hearing, but there are other ways to detect it. There, there are sounds that are outside of our range of hearing that we can sense. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some that are so low that, you know, you can't hear it, but you can feel it. You yes. get that thrumming feeling. Thrum, um, thrum, thrum. And when sound hits a really solid object, Mm -hmm. uh, it bounces. It it refracts off. Some of it reflects back. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's where we get the whole echo uh, effect. So when you're in the right kind of uh, environment and you speak and you hear that echo, that's those sound waves bouncing back and coming back to you. Well, you can use this to find your way around an environment.
0: All right. Well... um, so where does sonar come from then? We have to figure out exactly uh, really when that all started taking place. And uh, I think it was really probably, I mean, people had been doing it for a long time. Yeah. You could, you could identify things in, under the surface of the water, but why are you grinning at me?
1: Because like my favorite man of all time did some experiments with listening to sound through water. Okay. Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> We just nice. finished talking about him a second ago, which uh, I'll try and make sure that the podcast published in the right order. But no, Leonardo da Vinci, back in uh, 1490, experimented with with listening to sounds through water. He would insert a tube into uh, into water mm-hmm. and put his ear to the tube, like a
0: straw. Yeah. Pretty much like a straw, larger than a straw. Mr. Da Vinci, why are you listening to your drink? <laughs> he had a drinking problem. So, uh,
1: but yeah, he would use this to, to kind of listen to uh, to the to noises. With the idea that if you could create the right system, you mm-hmm. would be able to detect when things were approaching through the water. Right Now, during da Vinci's time, this wasn't really that big a problem. Things usually approached on the water, and if they were in the water, they weren't really something you needed to worry about. <laughs> you know, the uh, uh, frogmen yeah. of his day. Not not so effective. But uh, getting all the way up to the 18th, or the 19th century, rather, the 1800s, mm-hmm. Right, uh, you started to... Some some lighthouses would have underwater bells hmm. that would be uh, placed around the area to warn ships of of hazards. So ships could actually listen as they approached land and if they heard bells they knew they were coming up on
0: shoals and they could they could alter their course before running aground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, in around 1916, uh, yep. it was an early passive sonar system. We'll explain what that means uh, in a minute. But uh, they were using strings of microphones towed by ships, which is again something that dates up to the present in a different form. Uh, but by 1918, um, and of course, thinking back on it, that's you know World War One. Right. Uh, the British and uh, American scientists had developed an, an active sonar system. Um, you know that that was a big concern at the time because. Because, of course, the uh, German... U-boats right. were patrolling, and it was uh, some scary stuff. Yeah, actually, you know, they, it was a, it was a very intimidating weapon. Definitely. I mean, it's, there had been sub. Sorry, I keep cutting. No, you no, off. please. So no, there had been submarines before that, but sure. But the uh, the German U-boats in World War One were uh, a very effective way of uh, uh, taking uh, control of the Atlantic Ocean, right. And the shipping back yeah. and forth between the continents. So uh, sonar was something that they were uh, very rapidly trying to work out.
1: Exactly, and uh, it's funny because well, not funny, but it's. It's interesting to me that mm-hmm. really the the event that kind of started all this off wasn't World War 1 because by then they they were no, pretty far no. into
0: it. Uh but they to, did have an interest.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> to talk about to talk about how this really started off, you really got to look back to a certain event that happened in 1912. Oh really? And what was that event? Well, there was a little boat that happened to sink.
0: Oh yes, yeah, that little boat.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, don't let go. Um, wow. My heart will go on. Stop it! Yeah, the Titanic disaster. Stop it. Titanic disaster, 1912. Uh, following that, that's when we saw the first patent for underwater echo ranging device. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was that was where the the first patent was filed, um, and it was filed at the British Patent Office by Lewis Richardson, who was a meteorologist, um, and he he had come up with this idea of Creating a way to locate objects underwater using sound you would you would fire sound out, uh, you would measure the sound that comes back, and through that you would figure out. Uh, what was there, how far away it was, whether it was moving or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were all the concepts. Now, back in 1912, they didn't really have a way of of achieving this. He, he patented the idea, but it wasn't until, like Chris said, around 1918 that we started to really see accelerated development because then you had a wartime use for it, and mm-hmm. it was really important to find a way to, de- to detect those submarines,
0: those U-boats. Yeah, icebergs were uh, were obviously a concern, especially in the north. Sea and areas like that um, because, you know as the as is in the case of many cliches there is an element of truth in it the tip of the iceberg really is you know the smallest right part and so much of it is underwater and you can't tell without some kind of device and I think that's uh,
1: yeah the earliest earliest sonar or the earliest echolocation devices uh, were not very precise in fact they were so imprecise that they could tell you that there was an iceberg but could not tell you where the iceberg was so right. you you might know that there's an iceberg somewhere within a two Two mile radius of your ship, which is not entirely helpful. Although I guess it tells you to keep an eye out, Mm -hmm. so that you you don't see it just before you hit it. You know, you 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 know to keep an eye out for uh, for icebergs. Mm -hmm. Um, By the by the time World War Two came around, Mm -hmm. that's when the. Early sonar was really led by the British. Mm-hmm. They made the biggest advances in sonar technology. They didn't call it sonar. They called it ASDIC, A-S-D-I-C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it, the ASD was actually a code It was, it was so that the people outside of the top secret development wouldn't know what the scientists were working on. Right. So people say, well, what does ASDIC stand for? Well, it kind of stands for keep your nose out of it, mister. (laughs) Uh, So it wasn't really until World War II that the United States actually outpaced the British in this technology. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's when, you know, the, the term sonar started to pop up and that eventually became the de facto term for the technology. Right,
0: right. Now we should probably uh, at this point uh, go into the two basic, very, very, very basic types of sonar. So active and passive. Active and passive. All right. And in, I think passive is the easiest one to explain. Yes, basically you're receiving the sounds of the water around you. Yeah, you're listening. Yes, you're So simply listening. So passive... Uh, passive
1: sonar is where you have some sort of sound collection device, mm-hmm. usually a hydrophone, which is just a, a microphone that you can use in the water. Right. You would have hydrophones placed, and you may have a couple of different uh, passive sonar stations so that you have hydrophones directed in, in specific areas, so that way you can tell where the sound is coming from, not just that there is sound. Right. And you listen carefully for uh, any kind of indication of other activity uh, in the water. And um, it's interesting, because uh, as I was doing my research, I discovered that that if you were a trained sonar operator, and you heard a submarine. Let's say you're in a submarine and you heard another submarine. Right. You could actually identify where that submarine what was from based upon the sound you heard. Yes, that it's, is correct. It is
0: that is to me is phenomenal well every uh as i understand it every uh ship of any kind submarine or ship or you know i guess boat depending on what's on the boat has its own uh, audio signature uh could be the engines um or basically anything that's going on if there are electronics on board that make a noise if you know fans things like that some those things can help identify um Another vessel in the water to the listening vessel.
1: Yeah. For example, in the United States, most of the submarines were operating on a 60 hertz alternating current power system. Mm-hmm. But in Europe, they were uh, operating on 50 hertz power systems. So just the, the frequency of the sound would be enough to indicate to you whether you were listening to a, a U.S. ship or a European ship. Right. And, uh, you couldn't necessarily. If everything was running the way it should, you might not hear anything at all, or mm-hmm. you might hear very little. Um, it was if you didn't soundproof all of your equipment, like if if the various elements weren't. Uh, Weren't insulated properly, mm-hmm. then stuff would rattle, and you could you could actually hear the rattling. In fact, uh, one source I read said that uh, you know, the location of a submarine might be given away by someone accidentally dropping a wrench mm-hmm. onto the the, the floor, yep. the deck. I guess um, I assume there are decks in submarines. I've never been aboard one. Yes,
0: I believe there are. So
1: yes, if you were to drop a wrench to the deck, it w- it would could create a sound that someone another sonar operator might be able to pick up and say, "All right, they're they're." To port, yep. Um, yep. So it's it, it's a pretty interesting thing. And passive sonar, by the way, was more important for submarines uh, because if they use the active method, mm-hmm. they would actively be giving away their location.
0: Yes, that's because active uh, active sonar systems are giving off a uh, pulse of sound. Yeah, often called a ping. Yes. So you
1: ping the sound out, and uh, and then they wait. For the the sound waves to come back,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and based upon how long it takes uh, and how much how strong the signal is, that's how you kind of determine what it is you're you're hearing, or
0: you know how far away the 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 object is, and you know what it might be. Yep you know, how many uh, how many submarine movies have you seen where they do that tense moment where nobody's moving a muscle, they go wait wait. As, you know, as, and there's this, like you know, you watch the beads of sweat roll down the yeah. submariners' faces.
1: Yes, there's the
0: um, there's the one that I quoted at the beginning of this podcast. Hmm. Um, yeah, now, no, no, but there are many. You know, right. that's that that and that's the thing is you have to be very very quiet in that kind of a situation because any little thing can it, be picked up by the ping. And here's what's really interesting
1: uh, to me is that the the ping is I mean, well, really. Anything could be picked up by
0: passive sonar. I know. I just wanted to make it. Nice. Rhyme. Okay. I got gotcha. you. So I was about so to say, I want to correct just for the that rhyme. before we get email. It was just for the rhyme. I'm so, sorry. So active, but with it the wasn't active, a rhyme of an ancient mariner. <laughs> he stoppeth one of three.
1: Chris and I will be back in just a moment to continue our discussion about sonar. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. The active uh, sonar, uh, the basis of that really rests in the fact that we know how fast sound travels through water. Ah but do we we do, but it's really complicated. You would think, oh, it's gotta be some constant, right? Not exactly.
0: Actually, constantly constant.
1: Yeah, the 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 speed of sound traveling through water depends on several things. Mm -hmm. It depends on the temperature of the water, the salinity of the water, and the depth of the water. Yes. And all of these things affect the density of the water, which makes sense, right? If you've Mm -hmm. got more molecules packed together, sounds going to travel faster through the that because right. the molecules hit each other more quickly. Mm-hmm. Like It doesn't take much for a molecule to run into another molecule. The sound travels much much further and much faster. Um, if you've got them spread out, then they lose some of their energy as they are moving, and so it doesn't travel as far, and it doesn't travel as quickly. Mm-hmm. So the rule of thumb is that it's 4,388 feet per second, and then you have to add all these modifiers in.
0: Right, right. Now, there are some some things that you can do. Uh, there is a system uh, that I read about, the ANBQH-1 Speed of Sound Measuring System, which is you know a modern sonar system. Sure. Um, but uh, it evaluates the depth and temperature and salinity of the water to... Get an idea of how the speed of sound is going to travel through that particular water at right. the time. Um, obviously that's probably a very expensive piece of equipment because it's doing those calculations for you, but that's what modern computing technology gets you. Um, but yeah, it, it gives you, uh, you know, sonar technicians can use that equipment to get an idea of what's going on with a lot better accuracy and it also helps them avoid being detected by other sonar equipment right. because they have an idea of you know what the, the current conditions are underwater, where they are.
1: Right. So, if you're using active sonar, you might be using it for. Uh, well, if in wartime, you would have ships and and even aircraft using active sonar to try and detect submarines, and then drop depth charges down to to disrupt the submarines. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so, active sonar in wartime is often used by by vessels that can move fast enough so that it's not it's not a big deal about giving away your location. Like destroyers, for example. Exact
0: exactly. If you're a submarine, you don't tend to use active sonar as often. Um, yeah, especially when you're submerged and trying to avoid detection because that's you can't move nearly as quickly as uh, the enemy destroyers are coming after you.
1: Right. So. So, if you're also, you could be using uh, active sonar, not just in wartime, but also if you're mapping the ocean floor. Ah, yes. Then you want you want to be as accurate as possible, which means you have to have, you know, you have to factor in all those elements we were talking about before—the salinity and temperature and depth and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you're just using sonar as a fish finder, because there are plenty of of uh, products on the market that do that, you don't have to worry quite. That level of accuracy, because you're not you're usually not talking about the same kind of distances involved that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. and uh, usually the you know the depth is not as big a factor. Mm -hmm. So really, in that case, uh, you know you could use a constant speed for the sound through water and not be so inaccurate. I mean, you're looking for schools of fish; they're going to be moving around anyway, so it's not
0: like it's. it's not like like the kind of precision work you need to do with these other elements, right? Actually, that that's one of the things that I uh, found fascinating is during part of the uh, the sonar technicians' training, they actually uh, are known to record things that are just natural sounds, right? Like the sounds of fish, um, tectonic plates. <laughs> I'm not volcanoes sure, I'm not sure what kinds of sounds those give off uh, l- really loud low
1: groaning ones yes
0: kind of like uh, my back but that's but that's the the uh the trick is you once they understand what those things are they can eliminate them they go oh well that's just a large school of fish right you know oh that's you know an alien spaceship that's crashed underwater that kind of stuff right um i make a joke but no that 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 uh i was wondering about that when i was reading about civilian uses for sonar technology and was thinking well how do they know you know what is a school of fish and obviously if you're on a lake and it's it's probably going to be the stuff that's moving around underwater it's not likely to be an enemy submarine yeah but you know fi- detecting a fish versus you know a snake or some other type of uh, nest monster yeah <laughs> We've gotten very silly very quickly. Well, no. I mean, people have been
1: using that kind of equipment to try and determine whether or not there are creatures. Yeah. Sonar equipment? Yes. There are plenty of monster hunters who have tried to use sonar. Like a fish finder? Yeah. Essentially. But okay. that's the thing is that right. there, are, there are schools of fish in Loch Ness and schools of eels oh, sure. as well in Loch sure Ness. Sure. So you get a school of fish or a school of eels that's going to give you a reading and then people say, hey, look, there's a monster down there. Not necessarily. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, I've I've mentioned before in the podcast that I'm a skeptic. Uh, Out of all the things to be skeptical about, the Mm -hmm. Loch Ness Monster was the one I held on to the longest because I want to believe it's real. I don't believe it's real, but I want
0: to so badly. (laughs) Um, In a cottage on the shore, there's a shadow on the door. uh, (laughs) No, uh, different kinds of sonar, like side-scan sonar. Okay. Um, this is a device used to find uh, objects on the seafloor and figure out what they are. Uh, they usually have a tow fish, or a tow body, which is a, um, basically a sophisticated device that goes in the water and is towed behind the ship, and uh, a device that processes the signals on the top. Um, what happens is the, they use the uh, the sound energy, which is transmitted in a fan-shaped pattern, and uh, goes about 100 meters. Down or so. Um, basically, they use the information that comes back to create a an image of what's on the sea floor. So, if they get a really strong signal um, back, that appears as a light. Image on the screen, mm-hmm. whereas a uh, weaker signal would show darker images. So gotcha. you get a uh, sort of a black and white image. I don't know if it's actually black and white uh, because I was reading copy and they didn't it might have a be photo. Br- but might be bright green and dull green. Right, right. But you can get an idea of what the the uh, the bottom of the uh, area you're looking at. I guess it could be a lake or the ocean. Um, they don't they don't offer the same kind of depth information as the military would use to say, "Oh, well, we, you know, we're about to run aground." It's not the same kind of right. application of sonar.
1: Also, we should add that it, at certain depths, once you get really, really deep, the water mm-hmm. gets so dense that it can refract sound waves. Mm-hmm. So you you start to lose the ability to really map the ocean floor with sound because uh, uh, the, the the water itself is so dense that it's it's. It's mucking things up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, I guess I should go ahead and mention as well, we've talked a lot about the sonar. The sonar really has three main elements to it. Oh yes. There's mm-hmm. a transmitter which transmits the sound. Oh right, right. right.
0: Can't believe we didn't come. Yeah, in we that didn't right.
1: really talk about it. But there's a transmitter. That's that's what passes on the signal. Uh, it 's an electric signal that goes to a transducer now transducers what they do is they convert one kind of energy into another kind of energy mm-hmm. in the case of sonar it 's converting sound uh, electricity rather into sound uh, right. active for this is for active sonar clearly and then uh, you 've got a receiver that receives the signals when they come back um, and and then you know, usually have a display. So there's a transmitter, transducer, and receiver. This is for, again, active uh, sonar. With the passive sonar, you just need... Receivers, really, microphones, hydrophones, right? Um, and and there are plenty of stationary uh, sonar uh, uh, stations. Mm-hmm. I guess stationary stations. Thank you, Jonathan. You're both repetitive and redundant. But at any rate, there are plenty of these in the ocean. The the lots of different militaries have them sta- stationed at different uh, spots along the coast mm-hmm. to detect things like uh, possible incoming submarines. That kind of thing. We have a bit more to say about sonar technology, but before we get to that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. There was a sound detected in 1997. It was actually detected several times over the summer of '97 uh, in the Pacific Ocean uh, by uh, by a hydrophone array. Mm-hmm. And the sound was a very low frequency sound generated over uh, a pretty extended uh, time frame. Uh, several, I think it was several minutes long. And it's called the bloop. uh uh-huh. The bloop is um, this odd sound that, that we're not really sure what made this noise. If it was organic, then it would have to be a creature larger than any that we've previously identified. So if it were a whale, it would have to be such an enormous whale that we've never seen it uh Ever, yeah. So it'd be by, be ginormous, right? <laughs> to use the technical term, yeah. it's more likely that the bloop is a um, uh, was some sort of geological byproduct, right? But at any rate, the sound was located, or the the location of the sound is probably somewhere around fifty degrees south, hundred degrees west. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's interesting to Lovecraftian fans? I knew you were going there. Is that that's not that far off from the the supposed coordinates of R'lyeh, which is Cthulhu's city mm. of the deep. So some people have jokingly, tongue-in-cheek, said that this noise was dead Cthulhu snoring. <laughs> because in his house in R'lyeh, dead Cthulhu lies dreaming. All right, then. Uh, and also, let's, um, we can actually play the sound. So, what we're going to do here is we're going to just take a second. We're going to play the sound. This is a sound that's off of uh, the, the U.S. government's uh, websites, and it is specifically the sound sped up 16 times. Now, I don't know about you, but
0: I think that was Cthulhu. I was pretty certain it was a bunch of people flushing all at the same time. Could have also been that. It might have been during the Super Bowl.
1: (laughs) wait. It was the summer of 97, so it couldn't have been. I don't know anything about sports, but even I know it doesn't happen in the summer.
0: World Cup. Maybe it was World Cup. Maybe it was the World Cup. Except that wouldn't have been a... No, it wouldn't have been a World Cup either. Okay. So our speculation goes awry. Also, we had
1: someone on uh, Facebook, I think, ask us about the bloop. Yes. So there that goes. And yes. That goes out to you, random Facebook person.
0: All right. Um, so, uh, you know, I did look up some other interesting related technology like LiDAR, which is a light, detect- light detection and ranging system. It doesn't use sound. It uses light, uh, but it is used. uh, Bathymetric LiDAR is used to determine the depth of water. Um, It uses lasers. Pulses of lasers sent out at two frequencies. Um, There's an infrared pulse, which is a lower frequency, and that reflects off the surface, so you know where the surface of the water is. And then it uses green lasers that have a higher frequency that reflects off the bottom Of the area, interesting, and it it works pretty similar to echolocation because it's getting a reading for the top and the bottom of the depth, Hmm. so you get an idea of how deep the water is. And they use this um, uh, from aerially, generally. uh, Oh wow! From uh, they're mounted on aircraft. Um, So uh, according to NOAA, and I, I mean the National uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, not the guy with the. Big boat. That's the
1: second time you've made that joke on this pod. Not this particular episode, but in the series. Yeah.
0: Well, you know. Uh, but yeah, and depending on how clear the water is, they can uh, determine depths up to fifty meters. And this is really useful for those uh, really hazardous areas mm-hmm. uh, where it might be difficult to get a reading from a, uh, a vessel, a waterborne vessel. It could be a da- ship. Or a it boat. would be
1: dangerous to put a ship there. Yes. Exactly. Of
0: reefs and shoals
1: and that sort of thing.
0: Which is exactly why you'd want to know what it's. Like you know, underneath the, right, the surface right. of the water, so you can get an idea for navigation purposes. I mean, really, sonar. Uh,
1: just I don't mean to interrupt, but the reason why sonar was so important early on is because light does not travel through water very well. Yes, yeah. like, just normal light. You know, you go down just a couple hundred feet, and it's it gets dark really fast. And anybody
0: who's swum in the Atlantic Ocean knows that it's not exactly the clearest water. Uh, so it will be especially difficult to see in in you know water with a lot of salinity and uh, turbidity.
1: And of course, if you get it at pretty intense depths, then you don't want to have any windows in your device at all. True enough. Because
0: the pressure is too great. Um, before we get to the next segment, sure, I was going to mention too that you can uh, you can actually use sonar from uh, uh, uh you know from the air as well yes. if you are using a sonoboy, uh, which is basically a buoy that is equipped with sonar equipment. That is lowered. I guess by a helicopter would probably be the best. Uh, that's where I've s- actually seen it done. Right, right. Uh, where they lower it into uh, you know, so this floating on the surface of the water that they can get readings um, from anything that might be in the area. Yeah, that's which is
1: pretty cool. That's often used in in wartime as well because it w- it's a way for you know, you, you send a helicopter out to the general region where you believe there's a submarine. You mm-hmm. use these to try and locate the submarine. Then you use the depth charges, which are really just explosives that that sink into the water before exploding mm-hmm. um, and then try to uh, to damage or uh, or disrupt the submarine in some way mm-hmm. whereas the submarine is trying desperately to uh, or the people in the submarine anyway are trying desperately to avoid detection or That's you right. know sometimes they 'll use things like um, uh, decoy explosions so you create enough uh, noise in the water and it becomes very difficult to
0: pinpoint a specific object mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you wanted to discuss that uh, it's not all, the sonar is not all necessarily beneficial, that it can actually have a negative impact on the environment. Right, or yeah. Or actually the creatures living in the environment.
1: More. We mentioned that, that whales and dolphins use echolocation in order to navigate their environments. Um, sometimes there, there have been reports that, that the low frequencies used in sonar equipment mm-hmm. have uh, disrupted the, their this marine life. Mm-hmm. That in some cases there may be uh, instances where it has spooked a pod of whales, for example, mm-hmm. and in, and so uh, there there are some studies that suggest that some whales are suffering from a, a kind of um. Uh, well, sort of a pressurization sickness, because well, they're surfacing so quickly that they
0: are—it's uh, kind of like whales getting the bends. Yeah, actually, it's exactly like whales getting the bends, because uh, the report I saw uh, was actually from a, uh, a U.K. organization called Marine Connection, mm-hmm. uh, which is a uh, pro-water um, uh, life organization, and they, uh, they had cited a study from the magazine Nature from 2003, which uh, was citing an instance in which uh, 10 beaked whales uh, surfaced too quickly off the Canary Islands, mm-hmm. um, in 2002, and and they they got the bends. The whales got the bends, and apparently the situation is uh, especially prominent for deep diving animals, such as a beaked whale, Mm -hmm. and it may be related to the terrain uh, underneath the water if it's a really steep um, sharp drop off that may affect the way that the, uh, the sound waves are traveling underwater and may be especially confusing. Um, Noah also, uh, mentioned that there might be problems for, uh, deep diving species, uh, but said that, uh, more study needs to be done on, on, uh, these kinds of strandings to find out if it's limited to the surroundings, if it actually is the, the sea floor that is playing into it or whether it is strictly the sonar itself you know before they can make a decision as to what's going on but the uh, marine connection has uh asked the uh They've actually gotten involved and suggested to the European Parliament, and it asked for a ban on high-intensity sonar in certain areas. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there there are concerns that it may cause uh, some some harm. Basically, that they can swim into uh, dangerous terrain too. That is also an issue if they're they're momentarily confused, but in dangerous waters, that could be long enough for there to be a serious problem. Right. So, yeah, there there are some concerns about
1: this technology, which,
0: you know, we've been using
1: for almost a, a century now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Regularly. And, and, yeah. And we're still, you know, some of them, like the passive systems, of course, that's not a problem because the passive mm-hmm. systems, all they're doing is listening. They're not right. sending out any signals. So not all sonar is bad sonar, even from a marine life standpoint. Oh, no, it's still a, an incredibly useful
0: technology.
1: Right. You just have to learn how to use it responsibly so that you're not causing you know harm to the environment or to marine life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in particular well that wraps up this classic episode of tech stuff how sonar works it was fun to go back and revisit that and listen to a version of jonathan that's eight years younger than i am today holy cow uh I look forward to bringing you more of these classic episodes in the future. If you have any suggestions of topics I should cover in current episodes of Tech Stuff, because newsflash, I cannot travel back in time and record a new classic episode that that the Wayback Machine will not let me do that. It's apparently some sort of, I don't know, they call it a grandma paradox? I don't understand. But if you have a suggestion for a future episode, let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle for both of those is h Don't forget to go to tpublic.com slash techstuff and check out our merchandise store. Maybe there's something there that you would uh, love to have as a gift for yourself or a loved one. So go check that out, teepublic.com slash techstuff. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and I'll talk to you again really soon.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.